Welcome to the Film Geek Collective. Today we're going to be doing The Godfather. First, I'll go spoiler-free, then I'll do the shout-outs, then I'll do a spoiler analysis. Now, yeah, The Godfather is truly a classic, and while Seth MacFarlane from Family Guy fame doesn't care for it, Martin Scorsese respects it a lot, I respect this film a lot. It's a three-hour, well, it's near three hours, but it's a film that I immensely respect, and it never bored me for a second with its slow burn and and lots of characters that I had to keep up with. You know, I couldn't really keep up with Game of Thrones too much with all the different characters, but The Godfather makes it so you can follow him, I guess. But anyway, I loved this movie, first of all. I give it five stars off the bat. And you know why? Because the acting is superb. There's Marlon Brando, there's Al Pacino, there's James Caan, there's all the other actors in this film, Diane Keaton even, you know? Everyone gives top-notch performances in this film, and that is completely obvious. Francis Ford Coppola directs it really, really well. Like, uh, you know, he's obviously, like, as a director, you've got to leave some stuff to the actors. And, you know, Al Pacino will sometimes have, like, he'll drop his shoulders slightly or his eyes will dart around. Or if you're watching his body language closely, you know, you can tell there's a... Without giving anything away, there's a whole scene in Italian where you can tell just by body language uh, what they're talking about, and you can tell by context, but they don't translate the Italian at all. I think it might be Sicilian, but yeah, I'm going to assume it's Italian in this case, because most of the foreign dialogue seems to be Italian, and most of it is subtitled, so if you're worried about that, don't be. If you're worried about the length and the number of characters, don't worry, that has got you covered. Within the first half hour, you basically learn what's important to know. You're just going to be totally paying attention to this film. And yeah, um, if someone makes if someone makes you watch The Godfather, if someone says, do you want to watch The Godfather? They're making an offer you can't refuse. So yeah, definitely, definitely check it out. I'll be reviewing The Godfather Part 2 tomorrow because I thought I'd just do the whole trilogy. I don't usually announce my things ahead of time, but I decided I would this time. So yeah. I absolutely adored this movie, just like I adore my cat, who is sitting right with me right now, and she's probably wondering, why are you recording into your phone in your lounge room? Well, because I'm doing the podcast, cat. <laughs> but yeah, <clears throat> trust me, I don't need, just briefly, I don't even need a professional studio. I just need my home, you know? I mean, if I actually wanted my sound to have a budget instead of this lo-fi thing, you know, I'd have to donate a kidney just to raise a budget. <laughs> I literally do this on zero dollars. I do it for you fans, basically. So thank you for sticking around. And now to avoid the filler, I really, really like how uh, he's credited the author above the title. Mario Puzo's The Godfather. I hope I really did not mess that up. So yeah, this episode will be explicit because The Godfather is an explicit film. You know, just in case, you know... Um, yeah, it's mostly talky, it's mostly dialogue-driven, that sort of thing. But this this film establishes its pace for about 20 seconds before the first Paramount Pictures Presents thing comes up. I think that you see about, what, 20 seconds of a black screen while the music slowly starts up. And the first shot is amazing. Like, you just see a man talk about how he... Like, I believe in America, and he's staring at the camera for several minutes, and he's talking about how his daughter was hurt, she was too injured to even weep, but then the justice system did the, did the abusers wrong, they should have been harsher on the abusers, and he's basically just saying that, and I reckon, even though we never really see him again, that is a monologue that just, wow, 
I I think the quality of the writing in this film is impeccable. You know, they have so much subtext and they have so much uh, depth. You know, the characters truly contrast off of each other. James Khan, who plays Sonny, he's an angry one, while Michael is calm, collected. You know, you're not going to see the same Michael at like the character development is great. You're not going to see the same Michael at the end as you are at the beginning. So, you know, I hope that was not a spoiler. But, yeah. Um, I didn't say how or anything. But anyway, um, I absolutely adored this movie. And I also saw Apocalypse Now, which I should do a re- review for one day. But The Godfather never, ever bored me for a second. The pacing was absolutely great. Whenever a scene needed to move on, whenever a scene needed to linger, it did so, you know? It all depended on the scene. It all depended on the speed they wanted to set. And I have not seen such mastery of craft in a long film for such a long time. So, yeah. I'm going to... uh, That's all i got to say without spoilers. And uh, if you haven't seen it... Sorry, if you haven't seen it, see it. Because I'm going to get the shout-outs and then I'm going to go into full spoilers. Alright, Teacup Arenos, a Classic Blonde, Naked Airplane, KO, Savage Elbow, Carlofa Grande, Elsa 1, Sam from IJ, Still Mellow, Lee JM75, Contrera, Testicat, Cat, Pack Cat, Mary Amber, Real Sharks Podcast, aka Riri Shaku, Autistic in Melbourne, Ashy Slashy, Heavenly Imagine, sorry, Heavenly Imagine, Rose Begali, Larry, 1937, 26, 21, Dev Dynamar, Unicorn, Talk Me In, V, Films with Amy, Nathan Seabolt, Film, Marmatic, Liz Slade, Zeus, LC Cool, Zach Ascot, Saved by His Grace, 72, Craig Fisher, and welcome to the shout-out list, Caution Spoilers. Yes, her name is actually Caution Spoilers, but yeah, Caution Spoilers, because I'm about to uh, go into spoilers for The Godfather now. How appropriate to end the shout-out list with that. Thank you for that username. <laughs> anyway, um, so here are some of my notes on The Godfather. I really, you know, I mentioned the speech and I mentioned the character development. But I love the cinematography that he made it so dark and unobtrusive, almost. Like, not unobtrusive. I mean, yes, unobtrusive. You know, not too noticeable. Sort of low-key like the film is. But... Vito, who's played by Marlon Brando, he's introduced almost entirely in Shadow, and then when you see him, you know Marlon Brando actually picked up a stray cat that he insisted would be in the film, (laughs) and it ended up there, and you never see the cat again after that scene, but it's there. So yeah, he's patting the cat, and he's sitting down calmly at a desk, and that's like the villain stereotype. You've got to have your Bond villain almost, but he's far from a Bond villain. He's not even a villain, considering this deals with the crime syndicate. You know, we're dealing with well, they see themselves as heroes. In fact, I love the character arcs here. The fact that Vito goes from, uh, like, badass crime boss to guy regretting he ever took revenge. Like, you know, he doesn't want revenge in the end. He just wants uh, peace between the families because it gets too much. Um, you know, Sonny, whose temper gets the best of him. He doesn't grow past it and he gets killed at a toll boost. And finally, Michael, who starts as an innocent man and then slowly becomes... A, a guy who's set to take over a criminal empire who shuts the door on uh, Diane Keaton, which is a fantastic final shot ending it there. It leaves you thinking, really, who would be so cruel as to leave behind their own wife? Almost. Like, that's what it felt like to me. It's not like, per se, he was leaving her behind, but it felt like, you know, 
he was he was like ignoring his wife because ambition versus love and ambition won out for him and he was getting too greedy whereas previously he'd do anything for Kay, you know? But yeah. I like that uh, some people have pointed this out, but it starts out dark, but then it cuts to a wedding at about seven and a half minutes where it's like a semblance of normal life. Granted, the more the film goes on, the more that uh, the more that gangsters spend in the daytime because they have to go out to places, to other countries occasionally. But, you know, when they're not in a dark room, they're mostly in the daytime. And really, they could be hidden in plain sight, and that depicts it very well. It's more romanticized than, say, Goodfellas. Goodfellas, like, deconstructs it, definitely. But, yeah, The Godfather's still really good. It's, uh, it's actually, it has less comedy than Goodfellas. Not that that's a bad thing at all. Goodfellas has its own tone. The Godfather has its own tone. Once Upon a Time in America has its own tone. In fact, it's probably closer to Once Upon a Time in America, in a way. Except, uh, the pacing is definitely improved from that film. That's another good gangster film, Once Upon a Time in America. If you haven't seen that, then see it, but it's imperfect. But, yeah, only if you get the longest version, however. Do not see the chopped-up version. That's important for that movie. But anyway, back to The Godfather. So, yeah, we first see Marlon Brando at exactly 4 minutes and 4 seconds, according to my print that I saw on the stand streaming service. But, yeah, I like how... The editing matches the pace. You get extended lengths of single shots in some places. You know, slower pacing. Sometimes you get untranslated Italian phrases, or in one case, a whole conversation where you can tell by body language, which I thought was amazing, that they respected the audience enough to do that, to take chances, to take risks. And the 70s was full of that, just taking risks in movies, doing stuff that maybe not everybody's going to like, you know? Believe it or not, not everybody likes The Godfather. Now I do, but, you know... So, yeah, I I like the little details. Like, uh, there's the guy, Luca Brasi, who uh, he really is practicing what he wants to say to Vito, even though we find out he's his right-hand man. And he's just practicing in the corner, and he's saying uh, something like, uh, I, hope, I hope your first child is a masculine child, because, you know, they have unrealistic standards of, hey, oh, this has got to be a manly man, and all that, all that shit. You know, outdated stuff. <laughs> what does that matter, anyway? What ma- What does it matter if they have a girl? Come on, people. <laughs> yeah, so there is definitely... They're openly sexist. They're openly racist at times. I'm pretty sure uh, one of the white gangsters... They're all white gangsters we follow in this film, but one of them at one point says the N-word, and that took me off guard. But yeah, they're not shy about uh, their sexism or racism. So there is that, definitely. I don't think the film... In- I don't think the film, like, approves of it or anything. It's just trying to show gangsters as they are, as they would speak, you know? And I feel like it's better to show them how they would speak rather than try to sanitise things and not make it as true, you know? Because they wouldn't care about offending people, don't you think? So, yeah, um, I like that even at one point, the closest... The, like, in the first half of the film, the closest business and personal gets to being mixed, in my opinion, is, uh, this is before Michael shoots the guys in the restaurant, but way before. But when the children are playing in the office and uh, someone's got to stop them from, from interfering with the meeting with Marlon Brando, you know, and, uh, yeah... So, yeah, they, uh, Johnny Fontaine's part of their family. Like, I feel like that Fontaine name is familiar. 
maybe it was Vince Fontaine, I can't remember, but there was some sort of Fontaine guy in Greece, which Paramount would release six years later. Uh, yeah, incidentally, that's another adaptation of a musical. Uh, the Godfather not being an adaptation of a musical, but rather than an adaptation of a book. So yeah, this this film actually risked the lives of those involved. Robert Evans, the producer, didn't come back to the second one because, you know, the mafia were watching the production closely and they could never say the word mafia, which is insane, you know? You were under actual fucking threat during the making of that film. And, yeah. So, yeah. Like, Paramount didn't even have too much faith in the film. They thought it was... Some of the actors didn't have too much faith. Like, Al Pacino at one point joked it was going to be terrible uh, during when he was filming the wedding scene. But it did not turn out terrible, in my opinion. It does have, like, uh, over 9 out of 10 on IMDb. But, uh, yeah... So I think IMDb is probably more credible than Rotten Tomatoes for audience members because audience members, you know, I think that if they're using IMDb, that gives a more honest reaction of what the general public thinks and see if it might be for you, depending on a number of factors. But anyway, so yeah, I, uh, what else? So there's a a very quotable line that I just love. You know, uh, my father assured him, you know, he's talking about uh, John, Johnny Fontaine being forced to sign a contract or saying, my father assured him either his brains or his signature would be on the contract. And uh, the way Michael just says that so casually, like he's used to gangster stuff in the family, because of course he would be, but at this point he's hiding it from Kay, you know? I mean, sure, he's part of a big family, but still. <laughs> yeah, so Waltz is the head of the studio, of course, that uh, Johnny Fontaine wants to get a part into the film. So, yeah, um, that's the when the famous scene of the horse head comes in. Now, uh, the, following, uh, the following description may be a little bit disturbing, just a warning, but, yeah, basically, for the horse head scene, they got a, the, there was a horse that was being slaughtered at the slaughterhouse, and Francis Ford Coppola said, when you're done, give us the head. So the head you see in the final film is a real horse's head. And I'm pretty sure that's real blood covering his pajamas and hands. So, yeah, that will give you plenty of sweet dreams. Nah, no, really, it won't. Yeah, I'm not a fan of uh, I'm not a fan of animals getting hurt in movies, let alone if it's like a real body part or whatever. So anyway, um, yeah, the horses like the horse's name in the film is Khartoum. It's like his prized horse. I hope I pronounced that right. But, you know, that's really the offer that he couldn't refuse. So, yeah, um, the godfather status is explained as very important, you know, the sacred religious nature. And, yeah, so Waltz is describing, the producer Waltz is describing his encounter with, uh, like, I'm pretty sure he would be, he would absolutely be crucified for this today. But, you know, he says something about he had sex with an actress to get her parts in movies. That just grossed me out because of, you know, what's been going on in several movie sets, you know. So, yeah. Um, Yeah. I further like that uh, sometimes in terms of editing, they have the slow establishing shots and panning shots through locations to further establish the pace nicely. I mean, that's that builds to the horse scene that I just mentioned. Now, Tom, Sonny, Sonny and Vito are in a room. T- 
talking about uh, Salazzo. He needs cash protection from the police. He processes heroin. They don't want to risk the legacy. This is a time where Vito's in less power. He's, like, pressured to accept a deal with the guy. And I like that Vito's actually in less power here because, you know, he's just been the badass of the film. I mean, not exactly badass, badass, but you know what I mean. In the gangster world, he's highly respected. So, of course, yeah. Um, You know, Salazzo's implies that if Vito is so rich that over a million dollars is considered finance, he respects him. That's how I took that. But Vito ends up saying no, because politicians would not deal with the fact that he was associated with drugs. Later, a policeman, McCluskey, I think his name is, does get linked with the drug trade because of the gangsters. So yeah, I guess it does show a sort of negative side, but overall, The Godfather is more romantic about it than Goodfellas. You know, (laughs) like... Um, Diane Keaton and Al Pacino, like, they're not exactly as romantic with each other or as close with each other as Henry Hill and Karen in uh, Goodfellas, which would be about 18 years later. Yeah, 1990. Incidentally, when The Godfather 3 released, I am going to do Godfather 2 tomorrow and Godfather 3 the following day because I really have to see these movies as a film buff and, you know, I'm catching up on a lot. But yeah, I hope to get these reviews out to you. I know you guys were excited about the Die Hard review. And thank you for that so much. Thank you for the suggestions. Thank you for everything, by the way. I love that. So yeah, um, I hope I did Die Hard justice for you. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfuckers. <laughs> I just love that movie. Um, anyway, back to The Godfather and getting distracted again. Uh, so yeah, the one of my, uh, my favourite cues... Um, one of my favourite cues in this film is when Michael and Kay get Christmas presents, an obvious, like, time skip thingy. Christmas is like a break for the criminals, almost, and Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas is playing, which actually describes the family situation at that particular time somewhat well. You know, like, the whole gangster empire takes a very conservative approach that family and especially tradition are the most important things. The song indicating tradition, security due to the power they have, However, briefly, it's it's actually played, you know. Let me just search up the lyrics to Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, just because I can't remember them offhand. All right. Uh, I hope I don't get copyright striked for that brief humming of the Superman thing. I'm just trying to find something. You know, something about... Uh, something about tradition and... Uh, you know, as in olden days, golden days of yore, faithful friends who are dear to us, gather near to us once more, that sort of thing. Your troubles will be miles away, out of sight, etc. When you, if you know the song, you know what I mean, but I feel like it describes the, the power of the Corleones just perfectly, and that was a perfect music cue. And I've started noticing those more since Ladybird, when uh, Alanis Morissette's uh, Hand in My Pocket is playing toward the beginning of that film. So, yeah, um... Yeah, I, uh, all the deaths in this film are completely unexpected. Like, uh, Luca, who's like an assistant guy, I guess. I, some, you know, lots of characters I'm bound to confuse. One, one or two, you know? He's talking to Bruno to, to, to Taglia and his sibling. You know, his sibling offers he and Luca can do business together, but then Luca's just strangled. He's stabbed in the hand and he's strangled. And really, that's when the stakes establish themselves for the family entirely. Because, hey, they can get killed too. Anyone can get killed in this movie, you know? I described them earlier. Um, So, yeah. 
another great cue is when Bruno walks out, Santa Claus is coming to town, sort of references it, what's going on. You better not shout, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. I guess you better not cry about the uh, gangsters then. And let's see what else. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. You don't want to fuck with the criminals, otherwise you're on the naughty list. So that's how I interpret that. It could also apply to what the Tartaglias and the Corleones are doing. So, yeah. And it appears that uh, Luca, who got killed, had a very Merry Christmas that year. Or rather, that day. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Just a bit of my dark humour there. But yeah, Vito is then seemingly killed soon by assassins after buying fruit. You know, um, Michael and Kay exit the movies. Michael sees this headline. Perhaps that's uh, what what instigates his uh, start of darkness. You know, TV tropes will call it start of darkness. Michael is calling Sonny. No one knows if he's okay. No one knows if Vito's okay. Really, Vito just dies in the garden later as people of the film will know because they're listening to my spoiler analysis and if you have not watched the film then uh, you know you probably should not have been watching this spoiler and sorry listening to this spoiler analysis and because i'm going deep in the spoilers obviously so yeah what else so yeah sonny is seeing clemenza at the door clemenza you know the more rotund the more obese looking one i mean i don't mean to be offensive when i say that but people tend to remember people by uh, by visual appearances. So I hope I was not offensive when I said that. I could, probably could have phrased it better. I apologize if that was a bit insensitive. I really don't mean any harm. So yeah, moving on. Um, Sonny gets angry before he realizes Clemenza is serious. Sonny gets a phone call saying what's done is done. Listen to Tom Hagen, uh, you know, Sonny's brother. Cut to Salazzo. He wants Tom to help the Corleones, even though Tom's not really the muscle. Once Tom, you know, Tom's actually played by Robert Duvall. For a minute, I thought it was James Kahn. But yeah, he wants Tom to make peace between Soloso and Sonny, but Tom advises against this. You know, he wants Sonny manipulated to his cause, I guess. He wants to talk to the couple regimes and Tessio and that fat Clemenza. They literally say it in the film. That's probably where I got my cue. But yeah. Luca Brasi, next in charge, is the one to worry about, I guess. Solozo is the one who will worry about Luca whilst Tom takes on Sonny, the other two kids. And one of my other favourite lines in this film is when uh, Solozo is walking away and he's saying, I don't like violence, Tom. I'm a businessman. Blood's a big expense. I love the line of dialogue because I think he doesn't truly care about the human cost, only the monetary. Hey, it's a... Uh, <laughs> It's like the police in Monopoly. They want to take all your Monopoly money. <laughs> so Solozo says during the conversation that Vito, the Don, was slipping. Whoever's in charge at the time in the Godfather world is the Don. So Vito Corleone, Marlon Brando, is the Don for most of the movie. But then when he dies in the garden later, at the end, Michael Al Pacino becomes the Don. Uh, so, yeah. You know? Um, five shots and he's still alive. Vito is, in fact, pulling through. And I love the fact that he's pulling through because that was really unexpected. You know, it's only, it's one of the only times a fake-out death worked for me. I think they've tried that elsewhere to lesser effect. So back to Michael, Tom, Sonny, a couple of others. Two fish are sent, but we're told it means Luca, who got strangled earlier, sleeps with the fishes. And had himself a merry little Christmas. Strangled. <laughs> My attempts at dark humour. <laughs> so yeah 
you know, where Clemenza and Paulie go to 309 West 43rd Street. I typed that down so I could tell you that obscure fact. <laughs> Establishing shots of the country and, you know, where they're going. The Statue of Liberty appears in the distance behind the grassy field. You know, you hear their voices, see the cars drive on the streets. Polly, uh, you know what Polly's doing. I know this may sound a little crass, but he's taking a piss. He's shaking it twice. <laughs> Just, I don't know. Um, and he hears gunshots killing the uh, driver. Actually, I'm not sure if that's Polly outside of the car. I actually got confused. Uh, yeah, whoever's driving the car. And, you know, the original line after that was, uh, leave the gun. And the line in the final film is, leave the gun, take the cannoli. Which is actually an improv, you know? So, yeah. Um, uh, another piece of subtext I really like is, you know, when Kay and Michael are talking on the phone and she's like, tell me you love me. I, I can't talk. He's in front of the gangsters. You know, the bigger picture at war with the smaller side. Clemens is mocking the question like it doesn't matter, you know. Tom comes in, asks about Polly. He's told Polly is dead. Actually, yeah, I, w I kept getting confused if it was Tom or Sonny, so sorry if this is a bit confusing. The mob's already in favour with Michael. They want a bodyguard just in case. But I do like that uh, when, when Michael actually sees Kay again, she's like, when will I see you again? And he just brushes it off, and then she's like, when will I, when will I see you again, Michael? to make it matter, perhaps a symbol that Michael may never be seen again in his current form. Then a great shot of Christmas lights around an arch as he goes into a door under that. And I really liked that particular shot. You know, it's not particularly showy, the cinematography, you know? But it's uh, nice and uh, I don't know how to really describe it. It's sort of dark looking, except in the daylight scenes. It's sort of shadowy. It's sort of not exactly contrasty, but maybe someone could experiment with this film in black and white, see how it looks. But yeah, then you'd lose the oranges, I guess. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people seem to forget this is actually set back in the 40s, technically. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So Tom insists to Sonny that a deal can't be made about Salozzo. But, sorry. No, 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 no. I'm going too far in my notes. My bad. So, Okay. There's Doran do it. So he gets the nurse. Michael gets the nurse to help move Vito to another hospital room because he's hospitalized from being shot, obviously. But the fact he starts doing things anyway furthers the arrogance, the stubbornness, the drive, and his character development. Enzo, the baker, comes into the building, but empty halls and shadows are used to build some suspense. You know, maybe at low angle or two at the empty hall. See his shadow slowly walk in. And, you know, Vito... Mar Mar Marlon Brando, he's waking up at the tail end of 66 minutes. This is 66 minutes with George, a.k.a. Spike Green. I think that's an Australian joke. I'm not sure if the rest of you get it. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. I think that uh, Clemens is the one who's training Michael to shoot both officers, but in a shed, not actually for real. Um, this is... This is just after he's been he's been uh, caught by a police officer and then let go. I know I'm kind of saying these out of order. I just got to go through these notes as they appear in my memory, you know. And uh, you know, uh, you know, basically uh, they're insisting. All the gangsters are insisting so that they can live with the killing. It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. That's how I think it is. I think it's a great transition. You know, Michael's gun clicks and cuts back to Tom in that room. There's an even better shot during this scene. Tom walks toward a ringing phone in the background in another room. 
and the others who were sitting at the table across the frame, they're patiently waiting in the dining room. Basically, you know, Michael wonders how long it is until he can come back. He's, like, a bit hesitant about the hit. Another man says, I'm glad you came, Mike. Michael just doesn't want his father bothered anymore, and that's understandable, you know? Michael's calm. McCluskey, even the officer, he says he's a good kid. Little does he know he's about to get shot in the fucking head in a restaurant. (laughs) Incidentally, you know, this film does not have a single use of the word fuck, despite being a gangster film. Maybe because the Hayes Code had ended only five years earlier, but then MASH had one, so who knows. Uh, yeah. So we hear a train going past in this uh, restaurant scene. Michael has a blank look when he's in the restaurant. There's a bit of untranslated Italian spoken to Michael, and that's what I was talking about, the untranslated scene. Michael's visibly getting angry. He's looking around occasionally. His shoulders, slight shoulder slump. Try saying that ten times fast, really fast. You know, down to the waiter, down or to the waiter is where he's sort of looking, he's looking around. You know, sometimes people do that, they get nervous and they start kind of speaking like this and they sort of get nervous and sorry if I'm speaking too fast, but you're going to be exaggerating. You know, it's like hands held together, can't keep eye contact while Soloso stares at him. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that quite right, but whatever. And closes his eyes for a second to think of something, then a close up on his face. He then says in English, what I want is most important to me is that I have a guarantee. No more attempts on my father's life. But he says it's slower than that and he lapses into English because he can't keep communicating in Italian and he's just pissed at himself, you know? Soloso thinks he's the hunted one and he's like, all I want is a truce. Michael asks if it's okay to go to the bathroom because earlier he'd hidden the gun in the bathroom. Soloso frisks his genitalia for some reason, and I was thinking, why? Literally, it's in the movie. If you don't remember, it is in the movie. But, yeah. What then plays out is one of my favourite scenes in this film. Cross-cutting between Michael searching for the weapon in the bathroom, the man eating dinner, Michael taking the gun, hearing the train outside, clutching his head, straightening his hair. Then, he goes out to the two men slowly. The train sounds stop momentarily. As he seats himself with Zolotso, Michael looks around this time. This train is heard again before it screeches. He kills Zolotso and the chief before dropping the gun, and at least one of them has a giant blood mist behind their head and, a, and an entry wound. So yeah, a bombastic music score comes in with perfect timing. Mistaken the scene though, the man closest to us blinks. I couldn't believe it, but I saw it myself. You can even rewatch that scene, but it's still a really powerful scene. Newspapers are saying police captain connected with the drug rackets in Hunt for Cop Killer, paraphrasing things a bit. Ah, yes, the spinning newspapers trope. We need more of those. This uses the same crossfade technique as the opening of Apocalypse Now. You know, piano being played, meals in the background. Um, just superimposed, almost, of newspapers. Various dead bodies are also, you can see them, like, through the images, I guess. It's hard to describe, but it continuously does that with different images. Never truly settles into one image until about a minute later. One image is always transparent, and when that image appears, a second image becomes transparent to a third, etc. There's a great shot of a person being transported upstairs, shown from the mezzanine, and a crowd seeing it. You know, in this case, it's Vito being transferred. So Sonny says to Vito in the hospital bed, he's told about uh, Officer McCluskey being linked with uh, Soloso's drug rackets. Where's Michael, is what Vito actually softly asks at 94 minutes. It was Michael who killed Salazzo, someone says. I can't remember who. But, 
Yeah, I think that there's a there's a great contrast of motion. I know this is an incidental thing, but it's good to have even the incidental details done right. So there's a kid like herding goats. He's going from right to left, and the criminals are going from left to right. And I feel like it adds more dy- dynamic things to the scene, just in a sort of way, you know just different movement like not everyone moves in the same direction and I liked that sorry I wasn't so articulate until just now (laughs) but yeah some obvious words are untranslated in Italian you know you can probably pick them up from context but yeah so Vitaly gives Michael to meet his daughter Apollonia on Sunday at his place so yeah this occurs gives her a necklace it's almost wordless she shows she has the necklace they walk together and back in America, Sonny goes to pick up his sister. She has a black eye, has her husband had hit her. She has to beg Sonny not to do anything because of Sonny's infamous temper. But Sonny goes ahead and in the street beats the living fucking shit out of her husband, biting his fingers and hitting him with a bin lid with a huge amount of fury and, and uh, anger. I was... Believe it or not, my mind slipped thinking of a Pulp Fiction joke. And I love that movie, so. (laughs) And furious anger. Yeah, there it is. So, yeah, Michael uh, then celebrates his marriage to Apollonia. But back in America, Kay comes into the estate. Going back into Italy, Apollonia, um, I think, I can't remember if it's Apollonia or Connie, but he's with a woman. She breaks plates because she thinks he's cheating on her, maybe. But Michael whips her with a belt. She picks up a knife to defend herself. Al Pacino is terrifying in this scene. You thought he was such a nice guy, but he is terrifying in this scene. He whips her more off screen and you can hear the blood-curdling screams, you know? So, yeah. So Vito, you know, he's crying, finding out Sonny has died. You know, this is the character development I was talking about for Vito. I want no inquiries. I want no vengeance. I want you to arrange a meeting with the heads of five families. This war stops now. Again, he says it a bit slower, but I'm saying a bit faster for time. So when some other gangsters see the body, even they're shocked and Vito can't keep it together. You know, earlier he's slapping some guy and he's like, you know, don't cry. That's so, that's so girl-like. You know, he's being sexist again. But that's a bit of a trope in this film, I guess. Uh, another dramatic irony, Michael is laughing with Apollonia in the very next cut. He's soon told the bad news and he's told to move away for his safety and I feel like another film took a cue from this. I forget which film at the moment. But Apollonia is then killed in a sudden loud car explosion. Yeah, I think it was Martin Scorsese who used it in one of his films. But every death in this film is incredibly powerful. In the next scene, Vito has the families meet up right after another death, doing something at just the right time, you know? There are a great couple of lines when the families meet, like, a refusal is not the act of a friend, or, is vengeance going to bring your son back to you, or my son to me? I'm going to forgo the vengeance of my son, but for selfish reasons. I'm pretty sure it's uh, Vito saying that last one. So Michael, he comes back, he's been back a year in America, he's seeing Kay again, she's a teacher... He tries to convince Kay, oh, will you marry me, have children? Kay says it's too late. But yeah, so Michael goes to the casino. Mo Green will sell a share of the casino. No, he doesn't go to, sorry. He goes to deal with Mo Green, not a casino, my bad. But yeah, he makes a deal that Mo Green will share a share, sorry, share, sell a share of his casino and the Corleones give up the olive oil business. You know, even at 
two hours, 22 minutes and 30 seconds, Al Pacino himself says, I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. You know, Michael offers to buy out Mo Green's casino. Don's retired by this point, so it's up to Michael. Frito, his older brother, takes Mo's side, but Michael says, Frito, you're my older brother and I love you, but don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Ever. You know, Al Pacino's probably better at delivering that than me, but, you know, I gotta practice. (laughs) You know, aspiring actor, writer, director, and podcaster now, because I'm doing this. So anyway, um, I think that despite Vito's character development, Vito holds on to a prejudice of, you know, women and children can be careless, but not men. He holds on to this prejudice despite not wanting to get revenge by the gangsters again. You know, he's changed the core of his personality and yet he can't let go of his sexism and his and a bit of racism in the whole gangster empire, you know? So, yeah. Um, Vito also says that he never wanted Michael to be compromised and Michael, you know, should be the one to hold the strings. Senator Corleone or Governor Corleone... In the next scene, though, Vito interacts with a kid, Anthony, and he mentioned earlier, yeah, he has a soft spot for children, and I think it's a sweet scene, but there's an expert tonal switch where he loves being chased through his garden, you know, Vito's just running for the kid to catch him, but Anthony doesn't realise what's going on, but then he does. Vito falls down right in the garden, and he's dead. There he is, just his body. So, yeah, that's a beautiful church, though, that a christening happens in. An equally beautiful shot. One shot that does particularly stand out for me. You know, I'm going <laughs> to... I'd like to call it, like, the the Roger Deakins shot, even though Gordon Willis shot this film, not Roger Deakins. But, you know, the Roger Deakins shot, because Roger Deakins is one of the best cinematographers to me, and he does especially spectacular shots. I'm pretty sure I'll think of a better name later. Anyway, but, yeah. Um... I think that as the christening happens, Clemenza is coming in with a gun. He shoots two people in the elevator. And this is all intercut with uh, Michael in the christening that it's normal to him. He doesn't even appear worried that some man got shot in the eye on a massage bed that poured blood down his face. Another person shot on an elevator. Woman shot through the chest in bed. Man shot on the stairs with blood pouring from his back. But yeah, he doesn't even appear worried. That's how jaded he's become. And I'm sure you were shocked even hearing that or seeing that in the film. So, yeah. Another gangster, I think Harlow was his name. He's out of the family business, sent to Las Vegas. Kay finds out of Michael's business. So, yeah, Kay finally finds out the truth, but then the door just closes on her. And when it closes, it just fades to black. And that is a fantastic last shot. You got a first shot of that minor character saying, saying the thing about America, which was a really good long first shot. And then you get that excellent last shot that's like closing a chapter of life, you know? And perhaps that was also closing a chapter of life at the beginning because, you know, the it's like he's just saying, What the fuck happened to America? What the fuck happened to my country? Why can't why can't people be decent, you know? So that's a closing of a lighter era. The seventies I know this is said in the forties. But the 70s, when this was released, the 70s were more cynical than the 60s, in my opinion. Many people would say the 70s are more cynical than the 60s. And the 60s was all freewheeling and optimistic and, you know, not all free. I'm generalizing a bit there, but you get what I mean, right? So to establish the cynical style, you know, he questions the very nature of America 
And the 40s also had, like, the film noirs, which were very cynical, and they were cynics back then, that's the point. (laughs) But, yeah, I absolutely loved this film. I give it five stars, 10 out of 10, uh, A+, um, insert Chris Duckman choir music here, (laughs) probably 11 out of 10, actually. Uh, Yeah, but I really, I really think that I am so, like... If you've uh, listened to this review for some reason and did not care about spoilers, well, you should have cared about spoilers in the first place and now you've got the entire film spoiled for you. But, yeah, I uh, I really just... I think Francis Ford Coppola is a great director. I could have done without the use of the horse head. He could have just used a prosthetic. You know, I hate when I hate when animal cruelty is is ex- exploited for movies, like getting the getting the head from the slaughterhouse. That was uncalled for in my opinion you know real animals should not get hurt on film and same goes I think for real humans um you know like you know basically all violence toward anyone should be faked in a film you know except maybe if it's a documentary and you're showing maybe a schoolyard brawl or a or a prison brawl that you're showing for documentary purposes or whatever like that you know there are maybe a few exceptions like that, but, you know. Um, anyway, I love, love, love The Godfather. I cannot wait for part two tomorrow, and thank you for supporting me so much. Tessa, I promise I will do The Terminator uh, down the track. Um, ag- again, I, like I said on Twitter, it'll be a week or two. I will do uh, Tokyo Drifter and Branded to Kill. I will do Babahotep, Ash. Thank you all for the suggestions. You know, it might not be in that order, but I will have them in the schedule. And usually I just pick whatever to watch next in the next day. But I thought I'd plan it out a bit more. And thank you guys so, so, so much, okay? You guys are literally some of the best people. And I hope to keep creating for you. But, you know, you have creativity inside you too. So we need your voice because you can change things for the better.